Welcome, dear listeners, to The Learning Curve and to, well, at least in this household, day seven of quarantine, of coronavirus quarantine. And I have to say, it's, I know that these are, um, are are really disturbing times for a lot of us, but there's one thing that's top of my mind right now, folks, and that is, what is all this talk of binge um, binge watching things on Netflix when all I can find the time to do is sort of try and homeschool three kids and, and do my day job. So I'm a little confused and I, I, I love hearing Netflix recommendations, but I would, I want somebody to find me the time to actually watch them. Gerard, how are you, um, how are you doing this week? How are you surviving this strange time? So our wife and I are doing well. Uh, there, our two uh, youngest daughters are going to school, of course, here at home. Their teachers have sent them a nice list of things to do, so that's been helpful. Uh, wife and I have tag teamed as well on helping them with a couple of science projects. Uh, but as I said in the earlier show, you know, this is a privilege uh, for us to be able to do as a two-income household. We know that there's millions of families in the same situation who cannot for a host of reasons. So, you know, we count our blessings. We're also using our social network to uh, contact people we know who may be experts in particular areas and trying to put them in contact with people who can put them in contact with people who may need support. So that's on one side. I've got to confess that I've also been binge watching. So I'm one of the people that you're hating right now. Oh, I'm envious. Yeah, I've uh, (laughs) I've been binge watching uh, Homeland and Project Blue Book. Yep. So what was the last one? Project what? Project Blue Book, uh, about a scientist and a former um, Air Force pilot looking at uh, UFO issues uh, in the mid part of the 20th century. So heavy stuff for heavy times, Gerard. I got to admit to you, this is like something that, well, some people know this about me, but like in a time like this, I'm looking for the laughter. I'm just, I'm like, if I could, I would just go right back to the reliable old, like somebody's getting married and all of these mishaps happen movies, but don't have time for that either. Well, I'm trying to keep my kids off the screen, which is, (laughs) which is an interesting thing. But, um, one quick question, are you finding any, um, sort of, moments of clarity or joy in being, we're all being forced to slow down in a way, at least in terms of there are, there are these parts of our lives that have been you know, taken away, cut down. Are you, are you finding any, anything good in that? One thing that stands out is when we were having lunch yesterday, all four of us at the table, probably around one o'clock, the youngest daughter said, you know what, this is the first time that we've actually had dinner, I mean, lunch during the school day at one time together, because at this time they naturally would be in school. So for her, it was like, huh, this is good. They were spending some time together during the daytime. And I think the second is, you know, my wife and I and the kids will walk outside. A lot of our neighbors are walking dogs. One thing I can tell you, and I don't say this with, with any slight, given the seriousness of, of, of what's going on in our country, the number of dogs who are now being walked in the middle of the day versus just in the morning and in That's the right. evening. And so with a lot of people walking, there's also a lot of community conversations. Uh, Yes, we're talking about kids who are home with us, but we're also talking about um, family members. We're talking about what we can do to help each other. So it's, it's it's been twofold. And I think that's that's been good. Yeah, it's a little bit of a get to know your neighbors moment, albeit from uh, six feet away. I'm, I'm with exactly. you. We've been taking some beautiful walks, too, when it's not rainy outside. So, well, th- th- thanks for that personal insight. And now we do have, I mean, 
Wow. How many, how many stories of the week to choose from? But our first one, Gerard, I want to take us to, this is an issue that's like, put this on the list of things that I wouldn't have uh, predicted here um, from the Associated Press out of Philadelphia. And the Philadelphia school district has said, it's just, it's, if it can't offer remote instruction to everyone, it's an equity issue, then it's not going to offer it to anyone. So the superintendent announced on Wednesday that um, the too many kids lack uh, computers and high-speed internet at home. So they're just going to say, you know what? We're not going to deliver anything. And this is, um, it's fascinating. On the one hand, I absolutely understand we have to be attuned to, to um, you know, the fact that, listen, it, it, whether in school or out of school, as we discuss a lot of time on these podcasts, right, there are, there are people who still have far less in terms of access to academic resources and, and good schools, let's just say it. But in this moment, it's really, really stark because there are some kids who have access to nothing and others that will have access to something, as you've pointed out a couple times. But I still don't know where I stand on this. I'm looking for the thread that says... And you know what? This could be a long time. So we're going to do what we need to do. We're going to try and get broadband for folks. We're going to try and get computers for folks. I mean, I think as we're looking at this curve that everybody's talking about, Gerard, we're in the beginning. We're we're this could Absolutely. be this could be a long haul. And how much and how many children are going without learning in this time? I'm I'm really curious to know what you think. I worked in Philadelphia many years ago uh, as a summer intern and just fell in love with the city. And I've got a lot of friends uh, who not only live there, but have children who are there. And I know a few things about the school system. Uh, That's a tough call uh, to say everyone or no one. And I know in times of of economic challenge, we've got to make some tough calls. I'm just not sure uh, that this is the best one. Now, in no way am I questioning what the superintendent, school board, what they decided, not school board, but city and state, what they decided to do. But let's be really clear. Some adults, I'm not using Philadelphia alone, but some adults are using this as a pathway to talk about two issues, inequality, which is an issue, and broadband access, which is an issue. But th- both of those things were issues long before we had the exactly. issue that we have today. And so this is something that should have been addressed a long time ago. And maybe now that we're here, it will be. So that's part one. Uh, part two, you know, let's just get entrepreneurial. You know, you're in a city with a lot of uh, colleges. Uh, a lot of those, those colleges have strong uh, interest in technology. And so there's, I'm sure there's a way of making sure that students have access either to more computers, uh, even if it's in the short term, if there's a way of creating some type of uh, hotspots. Now, I know there's also a technology, not technology, but a infrastructure piece, because I talked to one of my uh, uh, friends here who said, you know what, the, the cables stop right on the other side of the street. And so even if company A is giving free broadband, I can't get access to it. So I think it's a tough issue. Philadelphia is not a, um, um, it's not a poor city, but I know it's a city with a lot of challenges. That's a tough call. You know, I've had to make some of those calls before, but I just think this is one where we can think a little bit more entrepreneurial than bureaucratic. 
Absolutely. I mean, and we're seeing some examples of, of entrepreneurship across the country, right? I think it's one state, I think it's South Carolina. Um, and I, and cheers to my friends at Excel and Ed for highlighting this for me because I, I hadn't read about it using, I think using school buses with hotspots on them, right? So there, yes. there have to be ways we're thinking about all of these ways as we should be about, you know, serving kids that need food, that need meals. And, 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 and with that come opportunities to think different. We're thinking entrepreneurially about that because that's something that we can't go without. We need to think differently about making sure kids have access. And is is broadband the only way in the short term? What else can we be doing? Because, um, you know, I think that a lot of kids are finding right now that they really want to learn. They might complain about going to school, but man, give them a couple days of this and it's right back like, okay, now what are we done? It's time to go back to school. There's a, there's a definite hunger there that I think a lot of parents are seeing right now. And this, go ahead, Jared. You know, it made me think of something. Um, it was either 10, 2010 or 2011, I had a chance to visit uh, a, uh, a school district uh, in central Virginia. And it was a consortium of about, I think, seven to 10 rural uh, districts who decided that rather than apply to uh, the National Science Foundation as individual schools to receive a grant to create a conversation between students in Virginia and students uh, in believe, Brazil, and it may have been China um, or Russia, one of the two, uh, they decided to do it as, as a group. And so they applied, they uh, won a grant, and they used that grant to actually provide students, believe middle school students, an opportunity to talk to students uh, in Brazil who speak, you know, Portuguese, and just to have great conversations. And I remember being at the meeting, it was really a celebratory opportunity. Um, the number of faculty, community members who said, all of a sudden, our young students are talking about getting a passport because they want to travel to another country and to actually maybe stand next to or have conversations with in person, people they were having a conversation with over, uh, over the internet. And these are cash strap communities for a whole set of reasons, uh, not just because they're rural, there's also property challenges. So when I hear, think of stories like that coming out of Virginia and hear the decision made in Philadelphia, uh, I think some of this is a political will issue, again, in no way trying to underplay the aspects of inequity and inequality. But right now, a lot of our private schools, a lot of our charter schools, a lot of our small network schools who are in rural areas and also urban areas uh, are finding ways of getting this done and sometimes even without asking for waivers along the way. Just food That's for right. And sometimes being really, really nimble in the process. I'm really curious, too, especially given your your perspective as a, as a former state leader on these issues, um, you know, we're all thinking about, so what does this do to accountability? Um, so you, it, equity alone, I, I mean, just stopping school, first of all, raises questions about accountability. But if some kids are, are have access, if some kids are learning online, et cetera, um, I, I don't know how many states we'd have to go back and count. I know we have not yet talked about, we maybe talked about it, but we have not yet suspended state testing here in my home state. A lot of states are coming up on that. And this is going to be a whole new moment. I think we've been pushing and pushing, trying to think differently about accountability for a number of years, but we've, you know, it's a stubborn establishment. We haven't gotten there and in too many ways. I think this is going to be a game changer for the way we think about how do we know, um, not only like at the at the student level, how do we know if students are learning, but how do we hold 
institutions accountable for ensuring that students are learning, especially if some of them are just saying, wow, this is this is so hard right now. We can't do it. What, what do you think about the accountability issue? I believe California uh, decided not to have their state tests uh, or if they have them, not to hold them against uh, school. I should say for yeah, against school. If it were me, um, I would suspend or better yet, I would use the term you just use hold harmless. Uh, for this coming school year, the level of disruption isn't only something that's impacting uh, students, it's also impacting teachers and it's impacting state departments of education, uh, P personnel who are responsible not only for making sure things are done, quote unquote, online and in paper, but there's just a lot of disruption. So if I were in the same seat, I would uh, talk to my state board and my governor and to the uh, correct members of the Senate and the House and of course, speak to superintendents, but really make a push for a hold harmless uh, for this year at least. And that way that's a, at least one big, whew, okay, that's at least one big hurdle we don't have to worry about as we have other hurdles popping up every morning. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, I really hope that this finally gets us to a place where we start thinking more holistically about what accountability has to look like. The test, I, I, it's important. I'm not going to say it's not, but for everything to hinge on that one test, um, there, there has to be, at least in my opinion, uh, a better way. I'm not saying get rid of it, but let's find, let's find a, a better way. Um, I think it's also really important for us to recognize that we've got, you know, of, of the many, uh, groups of students that are going to suffer disproportionately uh, due to this pandemic. We also are thinking a lot about our students with special educational needs. And I think this might, this ties nicely probably into what the folks in Philadelphia are thinking, because a lot of um, teachers and districts and schools are thinking, how is it that I am going to serve students with specific educational needs in the, in the formats that I have available to me? Am I even able to do it? And these are also many um, students with special educational needs are among those who are most vulnerable when it comes to losing learning when they're not in schools. So, um, and it seems like, you know, the, the federal department of education has come down and said, uh, schools, you're going to serve kids. You're serving all kids, including your students with special educational needs, something that we would hope and that we'd like, but comes without, with no small number of problems, right. And number of hurdles for, for parents to jump over for teachers and districts to consider. Do you have any ideas about this? Yeah, I read a great article on the 74, uh, and the title is Absolutely I'm Worried for Children with Special Needs, Unprecedented Coronavirus School Closures Brings Confusion and Uncertainty. And here's an opportunity when we say we've got, you know, 50 plus million students in our traditional uh, public school systems. And of course, you know, uh, know, nearly 4 million more um, in our traditional, in our charter school system. All of a sudden we have to realize, you know what, nearly 10% of both those population have students who qualify for special needs. And the way we deliver education to them sometimes in the classroom, sometimes out, is something we've got to take into consideration. So the Department of Education issued guidance uh, that seeks to provide a path forward And they also reinforced through a webinar uh, that they had from the Department of uh, of the Office of Civil Rights that, you know, under federal law, schools are required to provide individuals with disabilities access to an appropriate education. And so glad to see DOE put out uh, at least uh, guidelines there and have a webinar. But it's going to be a, a longer conversation for us. You know, a number of parents who have children in special needs 
Uh, he'd have them in public schools, but they also move them to private schools. And so there's also a conversation about private school students uh, who have special needs students and, and what's happening to them as well. But, you know, it, it's a tough call. You know, there's roughly 7 million students who would fall into this category. And this is also going to be an area where superintendents and state chiefs will play a big role. Uh, the federal government, of course, will provide a lot of money uh, to support it, but uh, it's going to all take place local and state. And I know we've got some state chiefs and superintendents who are moving forward, but this is definitely an area that's uh, going to, let's just say, post-corona, because at some point this will end. Uh, there will be a lot of legal questions that are going to either be answered in court or are going to be answered in uh, legislative and regulatory bodies. But one voice that's going to be really important to this could be the parents of children, special needs, but also people who represent them. You know, I, I say this as a board member of respectability, and we're a national nonprofit organization, and we focus on fighting against stigmas and advanced opportunities for people who have uh, special needs. And so our organization itself is working with public and private partners to try to bring, uh, let's say, a pathway forward to this. Yeah, I think in, in your point about um, parent voice and and the parents that are going to have a lot to say about this after, I think that that's going to be just writ large, a really interesting thing to watch when we when we finally do, um, you know, come out on the other side of this thing, because this is probably for many of us, I know for myself, this is a, a, a big window into what my kids are doing in school day to day. I have to say, I feel pretty, I feel pretty lucky that they're doing some pretty cool stuff. And, and, you know, I'll get like you, we're lucky to be in a position where the school is, is delivering and, and really um, there's continuity of instruction at this point. Uh, but parents are going to have so much more insight into what the school experience is like for their kids, both for good and for ill. And it might cause some of us who tend to sit back on the sidelines a little bit more and just trust to say, hmm, I don't know, I've got, I've got a little bit more to say about this. And of course, also already a lot of parents out there who've had that window and are, and are agitating for better. But great conversation this week. And we're going to continue it, Gerard, um, maybe with a little bit of a pivot, but I'm curious to see where this goes, because coming up after this, we are going to talk with Ambassador Raymond Flynn. Um, we'll give you his, his bio in just a second. And it is a long and impressive one. Ambassador Raymond Flynn was a three-term mayor of Boston and U.S. ambassador to the Holy See during the Clinton administration. He also served as Massachusetts State Representative on the Boston City Council and in the U.S. Army. Ambassador Flynn is a leading lay Catholic voice in the United States, a best-selling author of The Accidental Pope and John Paul II, A Personal Portrait of the Pope and the Man, as well as a frequent newspaper columnist, national TV analyst, and national talk show host. And if any of you have ever attended a Pioneer Institute event, he's always very gracious with his time and, and his thoughts. Ambassador Flynn, welcome to The Learning Curve. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, it's great to be on the program with you all. We're so lucky to have you with us because you have such storied experience. I mean, a successful multi-term mayor of, of a major American city. So this, and, and being mayor in Boston, I have to imagine, is no joke. Um, and you've also served under um, a pope and a U.S. president. So I'd love for you to just 
react a little bit to, I think many of us would like to know about your experiences generally. So, so varied and, and interesting, but also your reaction sure. to this well, moment that we're in right now with COVID-19. Well, there's, yeah, there's so much going on, isn't there? It's a lot of troubling news across the world. You know, I have to say, you know, as a longtime person who's been involved in politics and public public issues, not only here in Boston, but across the United States and even across the world as a, as a public servant. I've been involved in many, I might say, dangerous and difficult situations, whether it was mayor of Boston or president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, where I traveled quite a bit, or U.S. ambassador to the, uh, to the Vatican. You know, like dealing with crisis situations, including the uh, the genocide in Rwanda. I think I was the first American official there. The civil war in in uh, in countries like uh, Yugoslavia, uh, dealing with crisis situations at home, uh, race riots or fires, terrorism. I've been very active in Northern Ireland for. 50 years, or now the diseases of coronavirus, coronavirus, which has today become a an incredible fact of life, almost impossible to envision and imagine. But this is a pandemic, as we all know, that is certainly different from what most of us have been have seen and dealt with for a long time, perhaps if ever. The importance of uh, maintaining calm and basic public safety, like like even police and fire and hospitals, are really really important here in the United States. We have to be well informed about what's going on uh, across the world. I, I I noticed that the Vatican. I'm not surprised that at the Vatican, of course, is very much concerned about it and. In the Catholic Church is very much concerned about it. So there's there's an awful lot of new material that people may may you know we used to have a politician in Boston here. His name was Chip O'Neill, who used to say all politics is local. Well, maybe it maybe it was in those days, but now of course uh, I I changed that a little bit. I think I said all politics is personal, but all politics now is is international. And it's all, it's all across the world, and it behooves us all to to be uh, well informed about what's what's going on. I'm I'm curious, Ambassador Flynn, as a former mayor, um, what do you imagine is the biggest challenge that your fellow mayors are facing just at this particular moment? You know, I think this uh, situation, the health conditions, the health situation. Question is really, um, really so important because uh, you know we've spent so much energy and time building up our healthcare system so it would be, um, you know, it would be the best service that we could possibly possibly provide. I I know here in Boston and cities like New York and across the country have great healthcare systems, but I, I watched on TV this whole past month that it seems that the United States was completely unprepared for, for such a pandemic. 
an epidemic here. And, and that's kind of sad because, you know, as a kid, you know, my, my father went into the hospital for five years because he had tuberculosis. But it was well known because of the fact that, you know, the, the, the occupation that he had, he was a dock worker. The, the, the situation was very, very dangerous. And the the bacteria from the ships and and all of that and uh, you know so many of them went into the hospital with tuberculosis, but they finally made some progress in determining you know the cause of the of the uh, disease of tuberculosis, and after many thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives lost because of the environment, they made great progress. The, uh, the the healthcare industry made great progress in the United States, and I remember this very very well because, you know, my mother would visit my father in the hospital, and we would go go to the hospital of the incurable. They called it. They came up with a cure for the tuberculosis ultimately, but they were completely caught off guard. And I remember this because I studied this in school naturally because it was affecting so many of my friends' families and fathers and neighbors uh, in growing up in, in South Boston. And with that, um, you know, we thought we were out of the woods with, with the health, health scare. And then the next thing, you know, guys that I played ball with in Little League, Catholic youth organizations, baseball and football and all that, they contacted polio and so many of my young friends uh, died from polio and were in wheelchairs with uh, polio for the rest of their lives. They found a cure for that. And I, unfortunately, we're seeing that we're down this road again. And, and here they are, the, the deaths and the, the, the turmoil are going up exponentially each and every single day. One of the most surprising things about this is so many of us trust in trust in our government, trust in our leaders that, that, you know, they've got this. And now um, being under quarantine or having to care for your fellow citizens by not leaving or not risking infection or passing infection is one thing, but watching what's happening um, with, you know, uh, not being prepared enough to even keep our, our healthcare workers safe is something that we're all dealing with. And then of course, you've got um, leaders dealing with the topic that we talk so much about on this podcast, and that is education and and how many of our educational institutions um, were prepared, not not even for pandemic, but prepared for alternate ways of serving kids. And that's, um, you know, and I want to, you, you also have thought a lot about education. You've thought a lot about K to 12 Catholic schools in particular. Um, and on a, on a brighter note here, I would love to pick your brain about what it is that you think have made so many of this country's Catholic schools so successful. And, um, you know, we know that many of them, even though Catholic schools have, have seen some troubled times in the recent past, but Many of them continue to serve students well and continue to very intentionally serve students who who um, are most vulnerable in our society. What are your What are your thoughts on Catholic schooling in America today? Particularly in cities, major cities like we have, Boston have a we have a large, very large minority population, and many of those minority kids uh, go to Catholic schools, and they you can you can see the progress that they've made 
in the Catholic schools on the faces in the careers of these young minority kids that ordinarily wouldn't be given these opportunities, working, uh, going to school in a very disciplined environment, value-based environment, in, in one that where they're treated with dignity and respect. You know, my son was in the Navy for 25 years. He's now a Boston city councilor. But he um, he tells me about it all the time. He represents a very diverse neighborhood, all the largest Chinese neighborhood in uh, in Boston, and the largest and one of the largest African American neighborhoods uh, in the city of Boston as well. And he says when he gets the opportunity to talk to so many of these minority kids, he sees that they're arduously preparing for their homework or test exa- tests and exams. And and they're really caught on to the same things that we did. I mean, I went to par- parochial school for eight years, then I went to high school, uh, public high school. But I so I had a chance to weigh both sides here. And then when I got out of the army and got finished playing ball, I, I taught in the public schools uh, for, for, for a little bit of time and knew the minority community well. So the Catholic schools made great progress uh, in with, their kid, with the kids in, in the minority community. And thank God they did, because it's really giving these young minority kids an opportunity that they might not have ever had before. And, and that's in the area of education. That's why I've been such a uh, strong advocate working with the Pioneer Institute, working to give people who, who who don't have the resources the opportunity to go to get this education. It's mind-boggling to me that the Commonwealth of Massachusetts could ever have enacted such discriminatory and biased laws that would prohibit uh, kids from going kids who go to minor go, go to Catholic schools uh, that they can't they're not eligible for any kind of financial resources. So they can't get there. They can't get into these schools simply because the parents do not have the money, despite the fact that everybody knows that if they got into these Catholic schools, they'd get a good education and they'd have a better future and it'd be better for society and be better for the city. But, you know, it, you know, you know what it gets to, gets back to me? We have really lost, and I say we have, I, and I've been in politics 50, 60 years, and I've, you know, I've seen it all. I mean, from James Michael Curley to John F. Kennedy when he was our congressman, I've seen the changes that have been made. You know, we don't, Catholics, for example, don't have the, the political strength and the power and the voice, that political voice that we once, we once had. When when people spoke on issues of justice, social and economic justice, in discrimination, it was always the, the, the church leaders who, who kind of led that kind of effort. And as a result of that, a lot of politicians, including myself, heard from people like Richard Cardinal Cushing and and and, and different people in the church. And as a result of Eugenio Pacelli or Pope Pius XII, and of course I knew John Paul II as well as I knew anybody in uh, in public life. And when they spoke, 
the world listened and they had a great impact and their voice couldn't be dismissed summarily. I, I don't see that in the, the media. I don't even see that in Catholic colleges. Don't see that in society like we once saw it. And I think that's what's happening, and including not being able to give a little financial help to poor working class minority kids, Catholic kids, Jewish kids, any of these kids that don't have power and influence to be able to attend a Catholic school. And, and we don't have, we don't have that, you know, we have great priests and we have great nuns and all that, but we don't have a strong political moral voice in America today, like we once did. And I think that's, that's what's leading to a lot of the problems in society today. If I, if I had my way, we would have a strong voice on television, a strong voice in the newspaper. I mean, I read four or five newspapers a day. I can't tell you a strong Catholic moral voice that I would go to regularly to read or hear or listen or watch what they have to say. It, it just doesn't, it doesn't exist. I mean, they mass and we have religious events and so forth that are covered, but I'm talking about a strong political moral voice. And when, when you say politics, I guess everybody goes running for cover. They don't want to hear it, but you need a moral voice in politics and government in America today. That's what helped build and make America great. And we need that now more than ever. I definitely agree with you, Ambassador Flynn. This is Gerard Robinson. Good to hear your voice. Hi. Uh, we had an opportunity to sit on the panel some years ago that uh, the Pioneer Institute supported as related to uh, the uh, anti-Blaine amendments. You know, you mentioned a couple of really good points I want to do a deeper dive on. One is about just the, the politics surrounding Catholic education. You know, I graduated from Catholic schools uh, in Los Angeles. I worked for Marquette University in Milwaukee, St. Peter's College in Jersey City. Uh, both of those post-secondary institutions played a tremendous role in helping uh, public school students in particular uh, gain access to some after-school programs. But they also provided access to students who wanted to go to private schools through the use of a, of a uh, voucher program. Uh, today, we have voucher and tax credit programs across the country. You know, given the enrollment issues we see in our Catholic schools, as well as some of the closures, what do Catholic school supporters in Massachusetts and elsewhere need to do to become more energetic advocates behind the aspect of parental choice? You know, years ago, and, and, and I, I experienced this and I witnessed this, my grandparents on both my mother and father, my, my wife's mother and father, they, they all came from Ireland. And when they came to this country, they, were, they faced an incredible, my grandparents, for example, faced an incredible anti-Catholic, anti-Irish sentiment. You know, we had signs in our house just as souvenirs, no Irish need apply, help wanted, downtown office buildings. Now, you wouldn't think that for a great city like Boston with a large immigrant population, a large Catholic population, but they didn't have the power. You know, they didn't have the power of the media. They didn't have the power of the colleges and the universities, but they, but they knew how to fight. They, they, 
They were discriminated. It was a biased city, without doubt, uh, biased against immigrants, biased against Catholics. And we learned that. We saw that. We, we heard this. And as, as a result, you would never think of not getting in families, would never think of not getting involved in political elections. You know, when I went for mayor of Boston the first time, it was like 78% of the people came out to vote. 78%. Uh, the last election, uh, well, maybe second from last, there was like 14, 15% of the people came out to vote. Now, how are you going to how are you going to bring about change when you don't vote, when you don't organize? We had various groups. We had meetings in our church. And my mother and father would go down to the meetings, and the unions would have four or 500 people down there. This was the Longshoremen's Union. And they had four or 500 workers there. My mother cleaned office buildings all night, and she would go to union meetings. Their place would be packed. And then she would be cleaning the altar down the church. And even like the rosary or the novena, the, the church would be packed with people. And people would hear the priest and they would listen to the nuns. And we would hear the priest and nuns in school. You know, you were brought up believing strongly the values of economic and social justice. I mean, that was as important to us as, as mathematics and in, in English and world history was. We, we, we learned that. And, and we learned that, you know, it was our responsibility as citizens, you know, to take care of the poor, the unfortunate, the needy, the helpless. That's what we learned. That, was, that wasn't just a, a, a lecture or a homily. That became our way of life. And it also became our politics. That's what we believed in. And when, when I was... I, I just looked at the paper there recently when I, somebody gave me an old copy of a newspaper. My whole, the whole front page of the paper was all about Flynn. It's driven by social and economic justice. And, and, and I, we don't hear that anymore. We hear different kind, of, different kind of messages coming from our political leaders. That's why, you know, we shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't be shy. Uh, to get back to the basics, get back to those values so we can educate our kids and they're not discriminated in, in, in education because, of their, because they're poor or because of their, their family doesn't have influence or, or, or power. The church, the Catholic church was that influence, was that power. I don't mean from the standpoint of controlling how, how politicians should vote up at the state house, but I'm talking about advocating and fighting for working class, poor people who don't have that power and the influence on their own. But they depend, they depended on the church and the church could stand up to the powers to be at the state house, at city hall and in the Congress. I don't see that anymore. And maybe we, maybe we can't get back to that. But boy, oh boy, let me just tell you, I wish if I had... If I were going down to the church tonight and lighting a candle, that's the one thing that I would wish, that we get back and have a voice for social and economic justice for the poor and for the needy once again in this country. Wow. Yeah. As you well yeah. know, sometimes it's through a national crisis that people create a national conscience. 
And we've talked a lot about the poor as relates to its impact on um, those across the country. So maybe this is an opportunity for us to get back to that conversation, uh, both as Catholics, people of faith, and people of conscience. Thank you so much, Ambassador. Oh, you're welcome. Absolutely. Keep up the wonderful work. Thank you to you, and God bless you for bringing this message to the people. Thank you, Ambassador Flynn. And I have to say, a belated happy St. Patrick's Day as well. An important one to all of us here in Boston. And that was um, Ambassador Raymond Flynn. We are so lucky to have him with us today, reminding us all, especially in this difficult time, about the importance of getting back to the basics. Thank you so much. So, Kara, I found a really interesting tweet of the week that I want to share and with you and, and others because it really speaks to the broader impact that uh, the coronavirus uh, is having on our, um, on our economy. And this is a tweet from uh, CNN, and it talks about uh, coronavirus could spark another Great Depression, former Trump advisor warns. The person who is referenced in this article is Kevin Hassett. Uh, he's the former chief economic advisor to the Trump administration, and someone who I actually worked with at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, Kevin's not only a really smart guy, but he received support from both uh, Republican and Democratic um, holders of the seat that he had for a few years in the White House. And according to him, uh, he said, quote, we're going to have to either have a Great Depression or figure out a way to send people back to work, even if that's risky, because at some point we cannot have an economy, right? And basically what he's saying is that with the number of people who are losing their jobs and the number of people who aren't investing money into the economy, also changes taking place at the feds, that this is going to really have an impact on our economy. And while we talk about schools, we've also have to remember that many of our schools are often the number one to two or three uh, a third largest employer of people in a city or a county or a rural community. So when schools close, that's a major spillover effect into the economy, but also the things are taking place on Wall Street. And so uh, when I hear Kevin say this, and he's someone whose opinion that I trust on matters of this nature, then it's something that we should all pay attention to. And so he's someone I would follow and listen to and compare what he said with his uh, other economists on uh, both sides of the aisle, as well as those who work at think tanks and inside the academy. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming he's a pretty busy guy, but it would be fascinating to have him on here and talk about this because it is on everybody's mind. But that said, Gerard, we have got um, next week, we have another formidable guest. I'm really excited about this one, Jay Matthews, who if you read anything about education, you know him. Uh, Washington Post education columnist, author of nine books, including Escalante, The Best Teacher in America, promises to be a great show. So um, if you're not binging on Netflix, I hope you will download the learning curve and listen next this week and next. Gerard, until next week, I'm going to I, I'm going to ask you not to spoil Homeland for me, but I will be looking for new recommendations. But uh, stay safe, you and your family, um, you know, and take take care of one another, take care of your neighbors, and look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. Good talking to you. <laughs>